0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. This month, Canada lost one of its greatest investigative journalists, Toronto-based reporter Christy Blatchford. Ms. Blatchford, whom I had the privilege of working with during my time as an editor at the National Post newspaper, was not only a tireless investigator, but also a principled advocate for due process and the rule of law. As a court reporter, She knew the importance of the presumption of innocence and became alarmed in recent years by the erosion of such rights. In June 2019, Miss Blatchford was presented with the George Jonas Freedom Award at an event organized in Toronto by the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. What follows are excerpts from Miss Blatchford's speech that night. The full transcript was published by Quillette in July, under the headline, How Do Process Fell Victim to Good Intentions? RIP Christy Blatchford i can only hope that my profession remains inspired by your example
2: as you'll know in the last week of may conservative mp michael cooper dared to quote three lines from new zealand terrorist brenton terence dreary manifesto this in response to a bit of a hectoring from a muslim witness who appeared before the committee which was studying online hate. the witness was faisal khan suri the president of the alberta muslim public affairs council And among the things he said was this. We've seen a lot of recent tragedies happen across the world. In January 2017, the Quebec City mosque killer, Alexandre Bissonnette, gunned down six Muslim men in execution style when he came into the mosque with two guns and fired more than 800 rounds. The evidence from Bizanet's computer showed he repetitively sought content about anti-immigrant, alt-right, and conservative commentators, mass murderers, U.S. President Donald Trump, and the arrival of Muslim immigrants in Quebec. Surrey then went on, as did many other speakers, to mention the March 2019 terrorist attack in Christchurch, where 51 Muslims were murdered. After another speaker, Cooper, who is not my favorite guy, by the way, told Suri that he took great umbrage with his efforts to link conservatism with violent and extremist attacks, and that he should be ashamed. Then he read into the record three lines from Turan's 74-page manifesto, in which Turan said, quote, conservatism is corporatism in disguise. I want no part of it. And that the nation whose values most align with his own was the People's Republic of China. Liberal and NDP members sputtering with fury, the committee immediately went in camera. When they emerged, Cooper withdrew, having said that Surrey should be ashamed, and the hearing proceeded. And that's all, this is all fine as far as it goes. But a week later, the committee adopted a motion condemning Cooper for having been discriminatory, hurtful, and disrespectful to Surrey. Noted that he'd read from the Christchurch Attacker's Manifesto, though hardly with approval, and resolved to expunge the attacker's name and the three lines Cooper had quoted from the manifesto. The Toronto Manifesto is banned in New Zealand, which is ridiculous, I think, part of the we-must-deny-agency-and-infamy rationale, which now sees even mainstream media sometimes refuse to name mass killers. How can you know a thing if you're not allowed to put a name to it? Anyway, the manifesto isn't banned in Canada, though Toronto's name and words are apparently verboten in our Parliament. For Cooper's temerity in voicing his opinion, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer kicked him off the Justice Committee, and he was voluntold, as soldiers put it, to apologize again. Thus did a committee of the federal government rewrite history, just as Winston Smith did for the Ministry of Truth in Orwell's 1984. As Winston reminded himself as he went about his work, quote, nor was there any item of news or expression of opinion which conflicted with the needs of the moment, ever allowed to remain on record. Or as he said in his more frightened and thus more honest moments, quote, your name was removed from the registers, every record of everything you had ever done was wiped out, your one-time existence was denied and then forgotten. You were abolished, annihilated. Vaporized was the usual word, and so, perhaps, begins that process for Michael Cooper. I cannot tell you how troubling I find this, even though it's the logical result of a whole lot of things I'm old enough to have witnessed firsthand. Perhaps the key thing, because it led to the current importance placed upon feelings, was the development of the Victims' Rights Movement. Have you noticed how many people now rarely say, I think it rained or I think it snowed, but rather, I feel like it rained. I feel like it snowed. (laughs) Anyway, this began, as so many bad things do, with noble intentions. Long ago, and I've been covering criminal trials since 1978, it is true that victims and their families were sometimes given short shrift by the justice system. Busy prosecutors would forget to tell homicide victims' parents about the accused court dates. Occasionally, relatives couldn't get seats in a crowded courtroom. But these things didn't happen routinely or often. I was there. Generally speaking, no one is more aware of and more sensitive to a victim or a victim's family than a homicide dick. Most of those I know remember the birthdays of all their victims. But in the 80s, there emerged this idea that, as one advocate put it at the time, quote, the politicians long ago recognized the needs of criminals, but they forgot about us. A justice system that doesn't want fair treatment for both sides is not a fair system. Problem is, victims of crime were never meant to be a part or one of the two sides. Justice in this country, and in most Western democracies, isn't supposed to be a contest between victim and perpetrator, but rather one between state and perpetrator. Thus, it's the state of New York versus Blatchford, or in Canada, Regina versus Blatchford. It's not Blatchford versus the poor SOB she killed. And trust me, I have a list of likely contenders. LAUGHTER Of course, the broader societal interest of public safety and protection incorporate the narrower interests of those who have been hurt or damaged by crime. But traditionally, that's where the victim's role began and ended. And that's as it should be, I think. That's what the rule of law at its simplest is. We all agree that we will not seek vengeance and take the law into our own hands. If you burn down my house, I will not burn down yours in retaliation and perhaps rape your wife for good measure. Instead, I will call the cops, the cops will investigate, and you may be charged, and at some point, you may go on trial. But in 1989, the federal government passed the Victims' Bill of Rights, and over the next decade, this being Canada and redundancy always the goal, the provinces passed their own versions. What all these bills really did was provide victims with the right to information about court appearances, release dates of offenders, that sort of thing. But before you knew it, there was also the victim impact statement, which is delivered at sentencing and allows a victim or a victim's family to talk publicly about their loss. What these turned out to be were first steps. In May of 1995 came the trial of the serial killer Paul Bernardo. I suppose if I were truly modern, I wouldn't name him either, but I'm not, so I will. I remember that trial like it was yesterday and could talk about it for weeks. But for these purposes, let me just say that it turned the notion of victims being an uninvolved third party on its ear. Bernardo was accused and, of course, convicted of genuinely terrible crimes. He was a serial rapist who moved on to murder with his lovely then-wife Carla Homolka at his side. They were co-stars in the deaths of three young women, Hamolka's own baby sister, Tammy, and teenagers Lasse Mahaffey and Kristen French. Worse, Bernardo was way ahead of his time. Long before Tarant live-streamed his slaughter in the Christchurch mosque, well before Luca Magnata made and posted a video of his killing of the student John Lynn, Bernardo taped his attacks on young girls. It was new, and because it was new, it was especially terrifying. And the first thing that happened was that the trial of Homolka, which went first, was closed to public and to the American press, and subject to so many publication bans, it was essentially held in secret. Then, at Bernardo's trial, the presiding judge, a lovely man named Patrick Lesage, decided at the behest of a lawyer representing the French and Mahaffey families that the public and the press wouldn't be able to see the videotapes, which were the single most critical piece of evidence against Bernardo. This was because the lawyer for the family said, if the tapes were played in public, the families would have to watch them too, and because to play them publicly would violate their daughter's dignity and privacy rights. The families, through their lawyer, Tim Danson, asked for formal intervener status in the trial, and astonishingly, though the judge said he was doing it as an indulgence and not a right, Lesage granted it to them. Victimhood was also expanded in another way at that trial. Because the videotapes were missed by the cops in their search of the Bernardo Hamolka marital home, the government determined it needed Hamolka as a witness against her former husband. And fair enough, for a time they did need her, and she was more than happy to oblige. Prosecutors duly lined up an array of shrinks to paint her as a victim of Bernardo herself. Why, she was a battered spouse. No, she was a compliant victim of a sexual sadist. No, no, she had PTSD or traumatic amnesia. Six months before Bernardo's trial started, the tapes were belatedly found in a clusterfuck that is too complicated to explain here. But those tapes showed Homolka not as a victim but as Bernardo's accomplice, an eager, lip-licking participant in the sexual assaults of those three dead young women and several others, and who on tape seemed as perfectly capable of murder as her darling husband. The tapes showed that Hamolka had forgotten about some of the sexual assaults or perhaps lied about them. At least one police chief and one prosecutor wanted to breach her plea deal because of that, but there was no will to do it at 720 Bay Street, where the Attorney General's big guns work. There, they had all bought into the vision of Carly Curls, as she called herself, as the victim of a very bad man. In fact, Moko was both participant in the early and middle years of her relationship with Bernardo and the rape and murder spree. And then, in its dying days, but only then, so for about five minutes, his victim. Yet her plea deal, 12 years for her involvement in three deaths, survived and after serving every last day of her sentence she was free. Many people persist in seeing her as a victim, just another sad example of the toxic male. One of those people was a lawyer who represented her while she was still in prison, a Quebec lawyer who really believed in Hamolka's victimhood. Sylvie Bordelais was a true believer, that's a lawyer. Years later, I learned that it was Bordelais' brother, Thierry, who married Hamolka. Hamulka as victim did untold harm to the idea of gender equality, in my view. If, no matter what a woman does, no matter how heinous her crimes, we persist in seeing her only as the victim of a man, we infantilize her. We aren't granting that she is as capable of this full spectrum of human behavior, good and bad, as our men.
1: We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which we will resume very shortly. But first, a short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals of BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month's service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. So,
2: fast forward almost a quarter century, and where are we? Well, to court first. There has been for decades now in all provinces what's called a Victim Witness Assistance Office or something like it. These are the soothers. They accompany every victim, but particularly in sexual assaults, and guard them like attack dogs. They are always there, patting shoulders and comforting. They are the handers out of tissues and the dispensers of hugs. And a victim, which is to say almost always a woman, must of course be supported and believed. Case in point, the sexual assault trial of Gian Gameshi, where the three main accusers were revealed in cross examination as duplicitous self serving complainants with big access to ground against Mr. Gameshi. To varying degrees, they had all said that after they were allegedly attacked by Mr. Gameshi, why they were so traumatized they either had nothing to do with him. Or made sure to see them only in public places where you know they would be safe. This is what they told Toronto police, who had conducted a sleepy, I believe type of investigation that would greatly have pleased the hashtag MeToo types, but was in truth a shit show. And it's also what they testified to in court under oath in examination in chief. Alas and alack for them. It turns out that after the alleged attacks, they had variously sent Gomeshi sexy pictures, or in the case of one, given him a friendly hand job at her house after a dinner out. And by the way, where I grew up, that was considered merely being polite. <laughs> You'd think I'm kidding. <laughs> or in the case of Lucy Decouter, actively stalked him for a year written him an email in which she said, "'I want to fuck your brains out,' and sent him flowers and a six-page handwritten love letter in which she said, "'I love your hands,' you know, the same hands which allegedly had choked and slapped her. Gameshi was acquitted properly and rightly, and not on a technicality, whatever that means, and not because his lawyer had played dirty, but because his accusers had revealed themselves as utterly unreliable. They could not be believed.' And yet, it was as if the verdict didn't matter, as though it hadn't happened. The very same day, verdict day, women marched in two Canadian cities, Ottawa and Toronto, in support of their three sisters. On social media and in the mainstream press, people confidently raged against the verdict and the rebirth of old rapeness. Inspector Joan McKenna, then the head of criminal investigations for the Ottawa force, tweeted a picture of six unidentified women in the line, hashtag we believe, hashtag self-care at Ottawa police, and hashtag end the stigma. That tweet was duly retweeted by the chief of Ottawa police, Charles Bordelow. The chief of a major police force is an adherent of believing women no matter what, even after they have been demonstrably revealed as untruthful. Then-NDP leader Tom Mulcair tweeted on verdict day, quote, today and every day, hashtag, I believe survivors. Gimeshi was still called a rapist and still is to this day. And the complainants themselves carried on as though nothing had happened. They continued to describe themselves as survivors and do to this day. Are you fucking kidding me? What survivors? How do you survive a thing which didn't happen? (laughs) Gameshi, vilified and unemployable as he remains, three years after the verdict, was one of the lucky ones. The allegations against him went to court, where they were actually tested and found woefully lacking. Consider the other men of hashtag MeToo, most of whom had no such opportunity. John Furlong, the former boss of the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. Former Liberal MPs Massimo Pichetti and Scott Andrews, whose political careers and reputations were ruined by allegations of serious personal misconduct, whatever that is. Politicians Patrick Brown, Cantor, Tony Clement, and Rick Dykstra. CTV reporter Paul Bliss, who has simply disappeared. The brilliant writer Stephen Galloway and the impeccable TV host Steve Paycom falsely accused by former perennial candidate Sarah Thompson. Those are just the names I can remember off the top of my head, and what they have in common is that none of them had anything close to due process. None of them had the chance John Gomeshi had. Some of them never even learned what the allegations were. Aaron Weir, for God's sakes, was exiled from the federal NDP for being, and I'm not kidding, a close talker, as they used to call it on the old Seinfeld show. Yet they were done in and in some cases vaporized, as Winston Smith put it. What else can you call out when one of those who simply gave Gameshi a chance was fired? That's what happened to Ian Baruma, who was, until he dared to publish an essay by Gameshi, the editor of the New York Review of Books. Baruma's job was to publish essays. Then he published Gameshi's, then he had no job. It was no longer enough for social media to denounce Gomeshi, who, let us remember, was acquitted, or to denounce his enablers, as they are called. Now, those who would give him a voice or a platform must be mobbed too. Of course, a good part of the population, those of you in pants, can't really say anything about hashtag MeToo. Men have been pretty much silenced on this subject, and if they do want to speak, they first have to check their various privileges their maleness, their whiteness if they're white, their heterosexuality if they're that, and of course, the collective entitlements granted them because of the all-pervasive patriarchy. Honest to God, shoot me now. (laughs) Can't I just say what a whole lot of horse manure I think all that is? It's like the popular need women apparently have to feel safe, which I find utterly astonishing. I've worked with men all my life, often wildly outnumbered by them, as when I was one of a half dozen female sports writers in North America. And I can honestly never remember ever fretting or thinking about my safety. Anyway, I have a voice because I have breasts. And they're real and they're spectacular. So even though I've been deemed a rape apologist for saying what I think, at least I'm able to say it, Gameshi really was the lucky one, even though in his case, going into his trial, he was not cloaked by the presumption of innocence, as judges like to say. He'd already been tried, convicted, and hanged on social media, and in much of the old school press as well. Even I, and I was a paragon of neutrality compared to most of the people in that courtroom, had gone into the trial rather expecting to be convinced of Gomeshi's guilt. What happened was just the opposite. For anyone who was remotely paying attention, it was the presumption of guilt. Certainly, Gomeshi is luckier than Patrick Witt, who, as a 22-year-old undergrad at Yale, had an informal complaint filed against him by his ex-girlfriend with the then-brand-new University-wide Committee on Sexual Misconduct. We all know from the Lindsay Shepherd story at Laurier what bastions of fairness and freedom universities and their committees are. First, Wit was summoned to a sort of mediation. He asked to bring a lawyer, but was told he couldn't. He asked that fact-finding be done so he could clear his name, but was told, there's nothing to clear your name of. He demanded a formal complaint be lodged but was told he couldn't initiate it, only his accuser could. And guess what? She didn't want to. And guess what? Somehow, despite the confidentiality that was supposed to surround this Kafkaesque process, word leaked out. Witt lost his chance at a Rhodes Scholarship where he'd just been announced as a finalist. He'd been Yale's starting quarterback and had been invited to the National Football League Combine an annual invitation-only showcase for the best college players in the United States. And guess what? He was uninvited. And guess what? The New York Times somehow learned of the complaint against him and ran a story. Four years later, Witt was a student at Harvard Law School, which had just adopted a similar policy to Yale's. A bunch of law school professors were protesting the new policy. Witt wrote, quote, If considered in the abstract, many might wonder how a policy with such a laudable aim could draw any serious objections, and I might well have been among them were it not for the fact that such a policy nearly ruined my life. The complaint launched against me caused me and my family immense grief, and as a simple Google search of my name reveals, its malignant effects have not abated. It cost me my reputation and credibility, the opportunity to become a Rhodes Scholar, the full-time job offer I'd worked so hard to attain, and the opportunity to achieve my childhood dream of playing in the NFL. I have had to address it with every prospective employer whom I've contacted, with every girl I've dated since, and even with Harvard Law School during my admission interview. He ended the piece with this, quote, the reader might note that I have yet to even address the question of whether I was innocent of the accusation. I was. But it does not come up at any point above for the same reason that it never came up in any of the actions taken against me. Because by the nature of the proceedings that follow from these new policies, it simply doesn't matter. Didn't matter either, as it turned out, for Gomeshi. The narrative went like this. The complaining women had been abused by a callous system. The deck was stacked against them. They hadn't been colluding, heavens no, just merely talking, as chicks do. They were just simple women who had been deeply wronged. For the record, the Gameshi accusers were 41, 33, and 32 years old, respectively, back then. Ducoutere was a pretty successful actor and an Air Force captain in the military. Number one, the oldest, was a once married mother. Number three was in the arts. They'd each been around the proverbial block a time or two. None of the facts, most important of which was Gameshi's acquittal, seemed to matter in the court of public opinion. After all, went the mantra, he was a well-known creep. And now, because, as Justin Trudeau might say, it's 2019, we have new amendments to the Criminal Code, which give complainants in sexual assault trials the automatic right to have counsel and to get standing in arguments about whether they can be questioned about their previous sexual history. Automatic rights to a lawyer in standing. That's a long way from the indulgence Pat Lesage granted the victims' families in the Bernardo trial all those years ago. Sexual assault trials across the country are on hold for months as these issues involving what are third parties are worked out. In the trial of former Afghan captive Joshua Boyle, for example, The trial has already been sidelined for two months, so his former wife's lawyer could appeal the judge's ruling that the ex-wife could be asked a few questions about the couple's previous sexual history. Just last week, the former wife's lawyer lost in court, but that decision, too, can be appealed. The estranged wife, by the way, Caitlin Coleman, testified via video from a different room, the so-called "kitty room, so she could feel safe and supported a practice that used to be reserved for children of tender years testifying against their parents or abusers. In another case between former spouses, where the defense has launched a constitutional challenge against the new amendments, the wife testified with a support dog with her in the witness box. Now, I'm a dog person, but I draw the line there. We all talk a lot about the erosion of freedoms on campus, the lack of free expression on social media. These are charter rights and worthy subjects, but the most important rights we have are those we need when we're charged with a crime and face the ultimate loss of freedom, jail. Those are the rights to a fair trial within a reasonable time, to be informed of the charges against you, not to be denied bail without reasonable cause, and the right to be presumed innocence. These rights and freedoms don't exist anywhere else but in court, so we should pay attention when they're in danger of being eroded. Thank you for your time, and again, thank you for the award.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page, that's patreon.com forward slash Quillette.